Take your seats, wonderful family of God. So I'm genuinely thrilled to be here. People say that, but I really mean it. It's an amazing church, an amazing leadership. I travel the world. I have the right to say what I'm saying. I've ministered in 26 different countries over the last 36 years, 37 years. And this is one of the most outstanding churches I've been to in more ways than you realize. In more ways than you. And I thought, darn, he's prophesying, taking my job away from me. I was going to tell you that there is a mega increase. It's all upswing from here and now. You fought the most of your battles and and won most of the victories. Now it's just steady increase the next few years, steady, consistent increase. If you will turn your Bibles to the book of John this morning, I'd like to read from John chapter 10. If you read New Testament, John chapter 10, and I believe it's verse 22. I just want to mention to you that I do have product back there. I just completed my most recent book on interpreting dreams. I spent the entire year working on that thing. I'm a lot of work, and it will teach you how to interpret your dreams, to identify the patterns of your dreams and what if they're for you, for someone else, how to recognize whether your dream literal or figurative. And then once you do, how to lay it out and to interpret them correctly. Even has a dictionary inside there to help look up things in the, from the Bible, what the different things mean. And then I have other product back there too. I do and have been called. When God called me to the prophetic ministry, he didn't ask me to be a prophet. He asked me to train prophets. And that's what I do probably the most or the most effectively. And we have prophetic encounters on a regular basis. And the next one is coming up in September. I think it's the third in San Antonio. It's a three-day intensified downpour. There is no music. There's no worship. We pray for a few minutes and then we just download. And it's the only place I ever lay hands on people and the purpose is each person has an individual training that God has planned for them. There is no way I could teach you principles, but the discipleship is individually tailor-made by the Holy Ghost. And so that's why we only have maximum 30 people at the encounter. And I intensify, identify where you are and help you grow where you are prophetically. That's the objective, to make you as effective for the kingdom as possible in your prophetic gifting or ministry. So if you're interested, please, there are little cards back there too, just to help advertise. You can go on our website, propheticlife.com. We do have free devotionals daily if you want to sign up for those at propheticlife.com. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication. At Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in the Solomon's colonnade. Jesus had three, just over three years of ministry time. He'd spent 30 years preparing or being prepared for. At the age of 12, he already displayed phenomenal, above average, way beyond his years, teaching skills and abilities and understanding of, of the word and God and his kingdom. And for those who don't know, I must... I want to sketch this morning a picture to so understand because the message I have in there for you, you have to see the whole thing and put aside your sweet Lord Jesus stories because it's all in the word and I want you to stay with me and stay carefully with me. Jesus had three years to impart in a kingdom and to teach. In, Jeru in Israel, we had synagogues all over in every town and every big city. We had a synagogue, which is like a church, but not 
at the temple. You had a rabbi, you had seats all the way around it, and they taught it oftenly, often, but a temple is the only place that is the most holy place, the direct connection to God, the presence of God's behind the holy of holies, and that is the most special place. When a Jew prays, he prays towards the temple. That's how he prays because it's very, that's very significant. And so whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was because of a festival. We have seven feasts that are listed in Leviticus, clearly. And this particular festival is not listed there. So I'm going to tell you briefly, my Gentile friends, about what that really is. You may have heard of it. It's called Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is, was birthed 200 years before Jesus, when the Syrians came and took over Israel and dominated. The king was reasonable and kind. He allowed them to continue worshiping in the temple, but his son was absolutely evil, and, and he, was, he followed Zeus and the, the Athenian ways or the Greek gods, and so he established the statues and sacrifices in the temple of sacrificing pigs and defiled the temple and persecuted the priests and, and the Jews terribly. Then a man called Matthias, who had five sons, led a revolt about 180 years before Christ, and they fought for some years. Matthias lost his life and his sons continued and they drove the Assyrians out and regained the temple. It was in a total disaster. It was defiled and messed, uh, so full, full messy and, and defiled and it was broken. And then they were looking to put the, the menorah, which is a seven candlestick holder, which is a representative in the temple itself to show the light of God throughout the world. And that would have to be constantly burning as not candles, but little lamps in it and had to have very purified oil that would burn in it 24 hours, seven days a week. And so they found by some miracle, the Jews will tell you that they found some undefiled oil in the temple, but it wasn't very much. And they filled it up and lit it immediately. And it burned for eight days, which is the big miracle of light, the festival of lights. The ninth day, they, they, then they lit a fresh one, and that's where the nine menorah comes from. You may have seen it, which is for Hanukkah. It's a celebration of the restoring the temple and God's kingdom. It was then that Herod the Great built the platform as you know it today. It's called the Temple Mount, and upon that he built the temple that Jesus himself frequented. The Solomon's, the Solomon's Colonnade is the first place of entrance. If you enter the south side, this is all boring to you, I know. You must come with me to Israel and I'll show it to you. And you go up a very big, very large flight stairways. It's a ascension to God's house on the platform. You would first, there's a lot of mikvah, which are little baptismal pools. We always think that Christians are the, Christians think that they, baptism is a big thing for them, but it's an age old Jewish tradition. And we had the mikvah, which were many of them in front of the, of the stairs. And you'd go down into the mikvah, one side, there's a wall, and you'd come out the other side, cleansed. It was a process that you did frequently before you went up to the temple. And you come into the temple, there's three entrances, so arches to go in, and two come out. And as you go into three, you enter into Solomon's colonnade. That long colonnade is where Jesus was at that time gathering. Now, he would come. He lived up in the north. He lived in Capernaum most of the time, where his ministry was. But he came down to Jerusalem because he was specifically bringing the message of the kingdom to the Jews and there's no greater spiritual coming together than in the temple at a festival time. And so this is winter, it's cold and gets cold in Jerusalem at about two and a half thousand, two to two, two, eight feet above sea level. It can snow and get very cold in Jerusalem and it was cold and he was up on this, uh, on this temple mount and he was teaching the Jews, he was always looking where the Jews were. They were hungry for God. And here we were, were again. This is the scene that we now enter in. The Jews gathered around him in verse 24, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Christ, the Hamashiach, tell us plainly. Now, for you to understand that, I must explain this to you. They were looking for a Messiah, not the one that he was and is. They're looking for a deliverer, a, one, a man that was predicted and prophesied because they'd had so many oppressions continually. Israel had suffered history of constant abuse. And once again, the Roman Empire taken over the whole, whole Mediterranean and suppressed and occupied Israel. So now they were paying tithes, taxes to Herod and taxes to Caesar, and they were being dominated by these Romans, these ungodly people. And now they're waiting for a savior to come back, someone like David, to come and deliver them from the Romans, but also to bring back a spiritual health to the nation. And Jesus was doing miracles. Not a common place. John the Baptist was already preaching. Revivalist. He was a revivalist before Christ to make Israel aware because they'd become slumped in their backslidden carnal ways so severely that we had a, a, a real divide in the temple. There was a division or a split and a, a very spiritual group. You had the Hessians, which were from the Sadducees, and they were very much like the Pharisees who didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were very much like the Pharisees. And from the Pharisees, a group emerged also before that called the Zealots. They were extremely zeal, full of zeal and fervor and very religious as it were. So the Zealots and the Hessians combined and they left and formed their own group and went down to the Dead Sea and formed a monastery called Qumran. And that's where John the Baptist spent a lot of his time. You find lots of record of John being there so he fasted and prayed with them a lot. They reproduced the Bible. They were very spiritual. They rewrote the Bible for the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, but only 23 written. The one they left out was Esther, but it didn't mention God. It wasn't spiritual enough for them. And they buried all these copies in, in 11 different caves around them. As you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have, were found 2,000 years later, right before Israel became a nation, verifying the accuracy of the Scripture not being lost over all those years. Very important for us believers. The Old Testament is very important to us as Christians too. Jesus said, not Peter, not Paul, Jesus said that a man who studies the law and embraces the new kingdom that he preaches is like a man who takes treasure from the old and the new and brings it together. That's what Jesus said. I didn't write that. I didn't say it. He said it. I hope you know the words of your Lord Jesus because he saved you. He makes way for you. He loves you. And he want, the more you know about him, the more exciting it gets. All right, stay with me. I'm teaching you this morning. You had some serious preaching this morning, but I'm teaching. So stay with me. I'm laying layers so when you get there, you know what I'm, trying, what I'm really imparting to you. So now they're asking, are you the Messiah? Because they see the miracles. He's made an impact. But he's not saying, I'm the one that's come to deliver you. That's what they think. So he says to them, he answers, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Today we see people that know in our nation, know about the Lord. They may even go to some, some churches, but they don't really know the Lord. Because they have not met him. If you're sitting here this morning and you're going to church because whatever good reason, whether you feel you just need to, you've got a desperate need for God to help you, whatever the reason may be, there's nothing more wonderful than actually meeting, knowing, having ongoing relationship. I'm grateful 
that I'm going to heaven. I'm very grateful for that. I don't deserve it. I'm grateful. I have absolute assurance I'm going to go to heaven. But I'm a hundred times more grateful for this ongoing relationship I enjoy, the, the friendship, the love, the consistency of this amazing Savior. And you have to, you have to pursue it because he wants to respond. He's, he wants to be wanted. That's the whole essence of making man in the first place. He wants to be wanted, and it's your choice. He'll never invade your space. He'll never make you. He'll present himself, but it's up to you to choose. That's why it's a walk of faith. Once you taste and see the Lord is good, once you meet him, you wonder why everyone doesn't just believe, because they don't choose to. Now, he says, I did tell you, but you're not my sheep. So my, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. To follow the Lord is to follow his ways. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, in verse 29, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones. They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Imagine if you saw a crippled walking or a blind eyes opening and you actually witnessed miracles. Surely they would convince you that this is not an ordinary person. Surely the miracles, and I'm not talking about an odd healing that may look like a healing or a miracle, not quite sure. I mean something that's undeniably a miracle, undeniable, and consistently happening all the time. And this is what they answered. They, he said, they said, we are not stoning you for, the, for any of these, they replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man claimed to be God. Jesus answered them very cleverly. It's not written in your law, which it is. I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I'm, a, I'm God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe in me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So often, they tried to kill him, Nazareth, different places, because what he was teaching was offensive to them. They rather cling to their religious ways or what they want to believe, rather than seeing the evidence of the truth. And he escaped. And the reason why Jesus escapes is because he said, no one takes my life, I give my life. When the time had come, when the time had come for him, he waited for them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they came, he said, I am he. And he gave himself to them. There was no resistance at all. It was Peter's zeal that cut the man's ear off and Jesus replaced the ear. There was no resistance because it was time. There's a time in our lives that we must read and understand in all of our lives and recognize the seasons we're in. If we're in relationship with him, and if we walk in the light, and I'm about to teach you about that, then you will know which part of your life is, and you know when, hey, this is not happening, this is not time, you're not going to have this, but there's a time in your life when you must understand that this is now time for this. 
and you follow God's way and trust him. You've got to trust him. Trusting is not just believing. Trusting is without any information, knowledge, or understanding, complete dependency upon something or someone that you ordinarily just have no information from other than trusting him. When I went to Disneyland with this grandchild's mother, I remember her being this small, and we were in a massive crowd as the shoulder-to-shoulder people, and she felt quite happy and content holding my hand. The moment she got disconnected, she screamed. She couldn't see me. I was only a few feet away, but she, couldn't, she screamed because she was disconnected. And I realized that she'd become safe and trusted me while she was connected to me. The moment she was disconnected, she, the fear gripped her. You know, if you're in your life, if you, have no, if you have fear and not trust, you're not connected. You've got to connect. You've got to connect to the Lord. Are you hearing me? All right. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you're excited. Woohoo. Then the Bible says he went back across Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed. Here he stayed. Now, I've got to explain this to you because your sweet Lord Jesus stories leave you always with little pictures. You don't really see how, what it looks like. Jerusalem is about 2,500 to 2,800 feet above sea level. This, where he's gone to now, is 1,300 feet below sea level. So now it's much warmer there. And it seems very far, but it takes about six to eight hours to walk. There's a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, which goes through a very narrow gorge. And some parts of it are called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Many of the stories have played out in there, including the Good, Good Samaritan, as did David when he walked in, wrote the Psalm 23. And then he went through Jordan, then to the river, through Jericho and onto Jordan. And he went there, and it's like this different country, disconnected from the Jerusalem people trying to kill him. And he went to go stay in this area because that's where he stayed, spent a lot of time with John in the early years. He, him and John connected, being a cousin, and he went was baptized, and he fasted and prayed in that region. So he went back there, and he had a lot of disciples with him. And so he moved away from being in the target area of light, being attacked by or killed by these Pharisees. It wasn't his time. And so, though, though, and, they, and this is what it says, and many, many people came to him, verse 41, and they said, though that John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So there was a big following there. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. And he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this is why I'm explaining to you all these stories. Because right there where he was in the temple, if you looked out the temple, and you look towards the east, you would see Bethany, which was just down the Kidron Valley and the other side, not even, not even two miles away. A very close proximity, a very good base for Jesus to live with or live in, which wasn't Jerusalem itself, but close enough. So you'd have to go down to the Kidron, through Gethsemane, up Mount of Olives, and then you reach Bethany. And that's where this wealthy family stayed. They became friends, and I want you to grab, that you must grab this, this, this to understand the message this morning, that this, these were not just ordinary people he had met. He had ministered to a lot of people, taught a lot of people. He had called 70, and then from the 70, he elected 12 after praying one night and got 12 disciples. So there were different groups in his life, and he had different people connected to But this particular family were a base for him in this very important region of Jerusalem, and he, whenever he came there, they would feed him and take care of him so well because, it would, understand, he didn't come there by himself or one or two disciples. He came there with a, always a large group, never moved. And it wasn't so uncommon for Jews to have 
big parties and have lots of meals together. That was their, their lifestyle. But this was exceptionally large. There was always a large following of his disciples hanging around. And here they are. And he was familiar with these people and he'd built a relationship. He frequented them on a consistent basis. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and the sister of Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, the one you love, the one that you have friendship with the one that you know, the one that you are in relationship with. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So he's setting a stage now. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So John's making very clear that these were no ordinary people. That these were people that were very high profile, important, and dear to Jesus. When we've been going to church so long, serving God, tithing, actively involved in our church, we get to a place of expectancy that when we pray, we don't think it's abnormal to expect God to intervene for us. When people are new Christians or not even Christians and they're praying, they're hoping they don't have the same confidence that someone that's walked with God a long time, when someone's walked with God and experienced and seen how he does miracles, they almost have a greater expectancy to a place almost where it's a demand of their birthright, which it really is. And these were no ordinary people. These were people that were close to Jesus, and they'd seen him do miracles. They'd seen, witnessed, and heard of many, many miracles. So they knew who he is and what he can do. And now, being faithful all this time, it wasn't an unusual thing to expect him to come through for them, to help them. If you've healed other people and done it for them, you don't even know them. These are just guys you walk by. A guy breaks open a roof and lowers a, a lame man into your, and you heal him, and you don't even know him. Well, he's not familiar in your team. We're part of your team if you could just pay us attention because you love. So John, the John who knew Jesus is writing this whole account. And so it says, uh, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick in verse 6, he stayed there where he was two more days. He did not jump to it because he cared about them. He waited even longer. It's so strange when you call upon the Lord in faith and expectancy that God waits a little longer. Almost like it's deliberate. It's so strange God does so many deliberate things. He sends you into the storm. Let us go to the other side. And then he takes a nap very deliberately. How does one sleep in such a bumpy, wet storm? But he needed to because he needed for the disciples to exercise their faith. No point in having faith if you don't have a storm. After all that input in your life about faith and teaching and examples you've watched, if you don't have something to challenge your faith, you're never going to see your faith in action. Easy to have faith if you stay in the boat and you're safe. It's a different thing to have faith when you're having a serious challenge in your life. Right? Jesus loved Martha and Mary, and so the disciples said to him, verse 7, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going back there? 
Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now that's, uh, he's always teaching. Jesus is always teaching. If you know the Lord and you walk in relationship with him, you walk in the light. Your word is a light unto my way and a lamp unto my feet. He will show you which way to go if you are in relationship with him. The more you relate to him, you develop a harmony with God. We have so many instruments on this platform today, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But if you wanted to tune an instrument and use a tuning fork and you beat it, it resounds. And if you bring it close enough to a guitar, for example, and it's, say, for example, it's a string, it's an E note, and, a, and you come close to it and it's in tune, the E note will vibrate, the E string will vibrate without you touching it because it's, it's resounding from the sound. And so it's, it's in being in tune. There's a harmony that happens in the sound in the spirit and the natural world. And when you are in harmony with the Lord, you, you are in complete peace and joy and sense. You're walking in the light in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of challenges. Nobody likes challenges, but God leads you right into them and warned you you're going to have many of them. He said, in this world, in this world, you will have many troubles. He said that. So don't be surprised by it. You're not unique. Your troubles are not unique. They may be different to mine, but you have them because you are in this world and you are growing and training for reigning with him eternally. The things that you are learning are of paramount importance to establish what will be your function and how you'll be functioning in eternity. So better we take this more serious, what we face now, instead of reacting and panicking, how finding God's way through those storms and doing it his way. Jesus calmed the storm and said, do you still have no faith? Why would he say that? Because after all the teaching and demonstration, he expected them to have a little more faith. God expects us to have faith. When we go through a crisis, it's not just the devil attacking us. You know, we so often want to get into the violence against the devil. And, and that's true that Lord allows. The devil can't do anything to you without God's permission. Jesus said the devil has asked to sift you. Who did he ask? He asked God. He couldn't just do it. And God allows it because he has got a great project and purpose and an end destiny for your life in eternity. And he's training you this short term on earth. Every day is vitally important for you to know him. And you choose, you make choices your whole day day you're making choices of your life and God's watching what choices you make. He's wanting you to choose. Now listen, stay with me. I'm taking you. It's very important. You, I've laid some, put some layers down that you can follow me. Okay, so the next verse says, but Rabbi said a short time ago, the Jews tried to kill you. He tells about the light. So we walk in the light and he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. So now please see this. Lazarus is up there near Jerusalem, very close. He is way down there, 4,000 feet lower at the Dead Sea, and he knows Lazarus has died. I just want you to understand, Jesus is fully aware of what's going on. Even if you don't see him or see him in action, He's fully aware and watching. 
He didn't love Lazarus any less. He wasn't flippant about Lazarus. He was very caring towards that family and very devoted to them. But even though he heard he was sick, he didn't rush to go and help him. He said, this is to glorify me and there's a plan in this. A plan in such a tragedy and difficulty. And he says, this Lazarus is dead. So he's fully aware of it. He's not oblivion to what's going on. He's attentive and in harmony with the Father. We too should be in harmony with God, knowing what's going on spiritually. The devil tries to disrupt the harmony and distract us. When you feel that joy going out of you in the peace, take a moment and go to the restroom where no one will bother you because they don't like to bother you in the restroom. And then you close that door and you get back in harmony. You must protect, we call it walking in the spirit, that you don't fill the things of the flesh. But that's what it really is, is harmony. Get your harmony back the moment you lose it. The moment something disturbs it, fight to get it back because you actually, in a, in a darkness, the moment you don't stay in harmony, you start fumbling around, you're not seeing what's going on, you're being touched and influenced and manipulated by your circumstances. You've got to be in control of your circumstances. They can't be in control of you. So we're taking back control because we are his children. We are, we are an authority. He gives us all authority, all authority, not some. The devil is a frightened you, you will understand that. Jesus says, the keys of the kingdom of God I give to you, the same kingdom I confer on you, and what you bind on earth, I heard today, you'll be bind in heaven. Now, please understand that the devil doesn't re- react or get scared because you say, in the name of Jesus, he doesn't, doesn't frighten him one bit. In fact, the sons of Sceva situation, they said, in the name of Jesus who Paul serves, come out of him. And they said, the devil, devil said, Paul, I know, and Jesus, but who are you? And they jumped them and attacked them physically and hurt them. Because the name of Jesus wasn't a magic wand. What then was the difference? They weren't believers. The devil knows if you have faith, that when you say, I bind you, devil, if you believe it or not. So how well you yell, or how many times the way you say, Jesus, well, any kind of technique you might use. He knows if you really believe what you say. He knows if you have accepted the authority. Because the moment you attack him, listen to me, I'm going to give you a nugget now. He attacks back. He knows where to attack. He's seasoned. You are very amateur next to him. And he says, oh yeah, you're going to attack me, you with your life, and he'll start immediately accusing you to put shame and guilt on you to take away your faith so you don't have the power to attack him. So if you don't know who you are in Christ, if you don't know that you're righteous because of him, if you're not walking in harmony with him, in harmony with him, When the devil attacks, it won't take much for you to feel less potent and the binding and loosening hasn't had the effect anymore, but you're doing it from a place of fear and negativity rather than from absolute confidence and victory knowing who you are. When I bind the devil, I don't tell him, I don't tell him because I deserve it. I say, I know what God has given me. I'm doing it in his name, his authority. So when I say in the name of Jesus, I'm doing it by his command and you have to obey me. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm teaching you? Getting some, of the, getting some of that. And so the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Verse 14 says, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
And for your sake, <laughs> for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What? So that you may believe. You glad, you take pleasure, you get joy, you somehow, there's good things in this that you didn't do, stop us having a, having a miracle, that you didn't get intervened, that this poor Martha and Mary are going through trauma, their brother and getting his body ready, putting it in the tomb. This is all okay. So that I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. We have to go through so many things before we really get it sometimes. You come to church and the pastor tells you the most amazing things and you like it, it goes in your head, but it doesn't stay there. And then, then you go through a trauma and you're in a battle and he tells you the same thing again. Now it's going in because you're in a battle. That you know if you don't do this, you're not going to survive it. So the, what he taught you Sunday didn't go in, but now in the battle, now it's, you're really you're applying it, you're working it, you're working that thing and you keep rehearsing it. So we have to often need the crisis to get us a little focused. You don't like it, but I'm telling you the truth. I don't want the, fo- I don't like it. I, I ask God, just show me. Don't, don't, don't let us get there. Teach me. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Don't have to go there, Lord. Listen to this now. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Mr. Negative himself. Jesus called 12 disciples and you couldn't have had a more negative, whiny, complaining Christian than Thomas. Thomas saw miracles, did miracles, supernatural, and still had to feel Jesus' hands himself. Didn't believe. And here he's whiny, complaining, okay, let us go with him so we can die. So his expectancy is not in who he's actually living with, the miraculous son of God who he's seen and heard, and heard people say, son of God, he's still saying, let us go and die, we'll die with him, because his expectancy is the worst. I wonder how many Thomases we have in this audience today. I wonder how many people that are just always, no matter how much God does, you're always going to whine and complain about something or be negative. You don't get to be because we're the salt of the earth. The world need us. They need us to be the salt. Twelve spies came back having seen the same thing. They experienced the same atmosphere, the same weather, the same giants, the same problems, but only two of them had a different spirit. I hope that all of you in this room have a different spirit. No matter what you face, when the devil comes and attacks you, you say, devil, that's the best you got? That's the best you got, devil? And when you've got a fight going on, you're ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because I know whom I believed. When David approached Goliath, he didn't go, wow, you're big. He said, boy, I'm glad you're big. Ain't no way I'm going to miss you. Different way of thinking. The other professional soldiers ran when they saw how big he was. Verse 17, on his arrival... Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to comfort them. Many Jews means that this family was loved and popular and well-known. Wealthy, high profile, high society, everything else you could name it, they they weren't ordinary people. And so Martha and Mary to comfort them and lost a brother. And so uh, when Martha heard in verse 20 that Jesus was coming, She went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So she heard that both heard he's coming, and she ran to meet him. 
And she said, Lord, you should have been here. How many times in our lives we don't understand what God is doing? Why did you allow this to happen? If I just left five minutes earlier, I could avoid that car accident. Lord, I asked you, don't let me marry this man if he's not right for me. And look at my life now. And you're wondering, why didn't God just do something? Because you really meant it in your heart. You were looking for God's guidance and you saw it was a bad decision. You were trying to get God's leadership and God just allowed you. You should have been here. Then my brother wouldn't have died. You have the power. You could have come anytime. You, she's holding God responsible and hostage. But I'm glad Martha had a big butt. She said, but, but I know that even now, when you pray, God hears you. What you talking? What you talking, Martha? What you talking? Once she said that, and that's what Jesus was aiming at was the heart. Never about natural stuff. It was also temporary. When she said that, a dialogue begins. You know your brother will rise again, right? Yes, Lord, I know on that day of resurrection, he'll, he will rise again. No, 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 no. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. What? What? What did you, what did you say? When Peter said you're the Son of God, he got excited. Now, Martha, who's the carnal girl, Cooking in the kitchen, she was frying some serious, doing some cornbread and black-eyed peas and fried chicken. She was got some soul, that girl, and she was cooking. And because they all and Mary was not helping one lick. And this is the one everyone rebukes, and she says, "You're the son of God." You, you got that, Martha? You got that? Wow, I'm I'm impressed. And he sits down. Now he's already late. I mean, Lazarus is four days. He's rigor mortis, he's, the tomb's closed. I mean, it's like over, baby, it's over. And he's sitting down. You know what he says? Go call your sister. Why? Let's see what she's learned. Because when you go through a crisis, God's watching how far you've come. You see the crisis as an attack, an obstacle in your life, and God says, no, it's an opportunity. I want to see what's going on. He says, let's go to the other side. He actually launches them in the boat into the storm just to see what's going on inside of them. They could have stayed there and gone the next morning, but they had to go now in the storm because we had to see what's inside of you. We've got to find out what's really going on inside of you to see if you're growing, if you're still where you are, or are you developing, training? Are you trusting me? And so in this situation... He calls Mary, waits and waits, and Mary finally arrives, and she says to him the same words, Martha, you should have been here. My brother would not have died. And there's no but, there's no if only, nothing. And the response of Jesus is completely different. He's deeply troubled in his spirit. Are you, are you troubled for Lazarus? <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting down if I was, and, and I would have come earlier if I really was worried about Lazarus. I told you, I'm gonna raise, he's going to be raised up. He won't die. I've got, got this covered, but why are you so troubled then? Mary, she's the one that honored me, and she washed my feet, and she heard me teach all the time. She couldn't get enough. She was in, she was in church for all her life. 
I mean, she went to Sunday school and she was a Sunday school teacher and she was very actively involved in the church. She did ministry in front. She helped and prayed for people and, and she just doesn't get it. I, I thought I expected at least she would get this now. And, and Martha, the one that was up and down and then she was out, then she's back and she's in the church again. She got it. She got me. But Mary just didn't get it. And he's deeply troubled and where have you laid him? Let's go. Obviously, you didn't learn anything from this, as I hoped you would. But Martha learned. You never know how you end. It's not how you start, it's how you finish that counts. It doesn't matter how many times you fail or fall. The righteous, people that are righteous fall seven times, but they keep getting up. So if you have the household of faith, you only have two positions, getting up or standing up. There's no laying down for us. I don't care how many times you've fallen, what you've done wrong. Quit feeling sorry for your little self. Get up. Just get up. It's not over until it's over. And you hear your breathing, it's not over. You can fail a few more times, but just keep getting up. That's what Jesus died for all of your falling downs. That you know that he's got you covered. But you must get up and follow after him. Because that's how we end that really count. So he raises, of course, he raises Lazarus, as you know. And in this church, so I think one of the things that has really made the most impression in my life, uh, yesterday your pastor was not here. His guest speaker was here and I was ministering and he'd taken time out to be with his sons. It's not the first time that his sons took his attention away from what he was doing here. And it really touched my heart deeply. Because the one thing we're lacking in our country today is fathers. Let's wait, wait, listen to me. Every, we are building apartments faster than we've ever built them before because homes are divided. We have to support two homes now. Say divorced. A child will grow up and the parents will get divorced and then they'll get remarried possibly. And mom will have another man either move in or living with her or marry someone, and then get divorced again. So the child grows up with several fathers, and not one of them is really their father, and they don't know how to relate to father when they get saved. They don't know what a father looks like. And then when a young man grows up, there's no understanding what a father should look like, and that's why we have such a emasculation of our society, why things have gotten so confusing, because the family unit's been broken so severely. The last verse of Malachi, the last verse of the Old Testament says that the spirit of Elijah will return and restore the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers. And if anything I've seen healthy and godly in this place is fatherhood, parenting. And if he's that faithful with his own sons, you know he's going to take care of his spiritual sons. There's nothing like it. There's nothing, and that means male or female, there's nothing like it that... It builds consistency, building soldiers. We can't neglect our children, but that's the future of tomorrow, the spiritual sons. And so many here in this room have been fatherless so long, you haven't had a father, and you kind of don't know how to relate to this man, but he's every inch of him is a father. Every cell in his body is a father. You can see it. In, I see the evidence, the fruitfulness of his sons, who they become confident, strong, masculine, no femininity, no ridiculous nonsense talk. They're such good, stable, healthy young men. He invested in them, 
and they will reproduce and become great men and reproduce their children because they got an example and took time. It was a sacrifice, but he did it. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. May I tell you from the Lord, though, clearly, you may never measure yourself ever again by any other ministry or any other person. God doesn't measure that way. The size of the church, the success of the church is all wrapped up in your obedience, and you are vastly successful. The second thing the Lord said I must tell you is you have to manage your time from here on out more carefully because it's going to increase your workload. It's going to increase, and not everything that needs to be done is for you to do. You have to know this. You're inclined to jump in and do things that he didn't ask you to do just because it needed doing. You have to be selective and hear because Jesus did exactly what he was told. He said, the poor will always be among you. There's always going to be a need. There's always going to be a need. If you go by the need, it's going to kill you. If you go by your obedience to the Lord, you will effectively build his kingdom. And that's what you're going to do. From here on out, you may never compare yourself or look at other ministries because you're setting a whole new pattern in motion. It's not been written before, not been designed before, and you have to manage your time. You have to, your day, your, every moment is precious. You can't waste one time just doing good things. You've got to do God things. Your, the wisdom and the maturity you've developed now are, are of essential value for the kingdom value. The kingdom must advance. It suffered violence for a long time. God's been waiting. It's been a long haul until now. All that's unfolding with even the development on the side and the land in the front, all of it was always programmed by God. And he was waiting for the right time. You, you don't have that drive or need to be a certain success. Now it's a whole different, everything's changed and simulated. And so this is the time in the season. You prophesied over yourself before you had a chance too. This is the time for increase. Now this is, the, this is the time. It is now time for a consistent. Do you think this next year's double is going to keep on growing, keep on growing? And I want to warn you, with the volume of people come different set of problems, challenges, ideas, things, and things you haven't had to deal with before. But the Lord says, number three, is that you are well equipped for it. When you face a crisis, you don't know what, how to do it. I haven't done this before. I've equipped you. Just take time out, and I'll show you how to do it. I've equipped you. I've given you everything you need to do this job. God's redepending upon you to lead his people because he's raising up a whole generation of fathers now, and you are it. It's that simple. Pastor Steph, may I honestly thank you and honor you for the, the, the wonderful example you set all these years of gracious, kind, loving, patient. When I told you patient yesterday, you looked at me like, yeah, you don't know me. But I've never seen any evidence of anything other than kindness and patience. Ask my wife how impatient I can be. It's a struggle I've had. I've been asking God for years for patience, and he's just not hurrying with it. He's taking a whole lot of time. It's so severe that when we go as a family through the passport control, I make them go to another line because my line's always going to stall, always, just to, just to wear me down. And it's a, it's a bad habit already. They're already through and I'm still waiting because some idiot in front decided they're in the wrong line and got in the wrong... Th- uh, anyway, but that's the story of my life. But you have a great patience with people and tolerance and your approach, your greatest gift is the grace and mercy you show people, even the ones that don't deserve it. People come to you with guilt and shame, and yet still you don't 
you don't feel that way. You have, it's not your, not your framework of reference to be judgmental, unforgiving. You just have a great grace. Your sons have learned so much from their father, but they've watched you. You've imparted as much to them in the ways of God. And so they, they are a combination. They are what you have done for their lives. And it's not stopping now because you've raised up generals. I mean, they're young already, so young, and they're really way beyond their years in maturity and, and cleanliness and uprightness. And so kingdom of God will only advance will only advance, and you're doing an outstanding job, and God's hands on you, there's no question. There will never be, again, a lack of finance in this church. Never, never, ever, never, ever. And you feel so happy about this, but hear what I'm telling you. You will one day wish, say, I'd rather have taken that financial pressure than all this stuff, because the bigger the body gets, the bigger the pressures and the wars come. Sometimes so confusing because people are people are people. And God has spared you all that until now, waiting for you to grow and become mature. And so your greatest battle was always to pay the bills, to be the father, but it's going to be the smallest part of your life, not even a concern. The others will be much bigger battles to try and make, make, do the right thing for the kingdom and, the, and watch children fighting in your church that shouldn't be. And all these things that are hard for you, your spiritual kids. So it, you, just remember what I'm telling you. You're well equipped and God will, God will bless it. There's no question. So that's that for you guys. Woohoo! So wherever you are, you are like Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. You are God's favorite and God loves you dearly. So if you haven't got an answer to your prayer yet, or there's something going on, you wonder what God's doing, you don't get it. He doesn't always tell you his whole program, but he's got a plan. And he'll glorify his name, whatever it is. You've got to trust him and lean on him. Because it's never too late for a miracle, even if, it's, even if your solution's rigor mortis, even if your problem's buried in closed up, sealed grave, it's still not too late for the Lord. God is able. You never, ever give up, ever. While there's a living God, we never give up because God is alive. There's no one like him. Amen.